Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. This week, I'm welcoming back to the podcast my friend, Dr. Jessica Heckman. Jessica is a veterinarian who also has a PhD in genetics, and she is the founder of the Functional Dog Collaborative. We sat down to discuss what the research really says about managing stress for our dogs in the veterinary setting. And this conversation took a lot of unexpected twists and turns, as it always does when I'm talking to Jessica. So I need to give you a content warning for the episode. We do go into some issues of suicide in the veterinary field briefly. If that's not for you, feel free to skip this one. Enjoy. Welcome back. Will you share your name and your pronouns with everybody? Jessica Heckman, she, her. And Jessica Heckman is a little bit under the weather, so forgive everyone for the, forgive her for the sniffly Sniffles. There are disgusting sounds. We just decided to go for it because you might die of boredom otherwise with your your COVID situation. (laughs) Pretty much what I said, yeah. Yes. So you have had some recent experiences, and unfortunately so have I, of being in various veterinary offices with our dogs. And you are a veterinarian, but you're not a practicing veterinarian. And so you have some interesting perspectives here and we got talking about it. So what were you witnessing that made us want to get on a recording instead of just have our normal rant in private? Yeah. And remind me if there's some things that I said to you that I forget to bring up now, but um, I, I've done a fair amount of just sitting in the referral clinic for like two hours at a time because Jenny's getting chemotherapy. And so it'll be like, you know, come wait. Cause I don't, I don't want to, I live 45 minutes away. And so I don't want them to call me. And then it takes me an hour to get there and she's been sitting there for an hour. So I just go sit and wait so that I can get her as soon as they say. And um, just observing people who come in. I think this is when I started messaging you was when some, a guy came in with his dog and he, clearly recognized that the dog was anxious and kept trying to tell the dog to calm down and that everything would be fine. And I was just like, I just like none of my dogs like waiting in the waiting room. Why should they? It's really stressful. It's full of other dogs. There's going to be strange dogs coming in unexpectedly. Who knows how those dogs are going to respond to you? There's all these strange people. Even if you like people, there's strange people. And so I always leave my dogs in the car And if the weather's bad, I wait in the car with them so that I can have the car on always. And to be fair, none of my dogs are models of good citizenship in the the clinic. But I I still feel like it's useful for like, even if you have the sort of happy-go-lucky golden retriever, I feel like waiting in the car is a good option. And I don't see anybody else but me doing it. Yeah, I always walk in without the dog check in and let them yeah. know that I I either sit down and wait for them to be ready or I let them know that I'll be in the car with the dog and they can give me a call or even like wave out the door at me and I will come in and I am the only person doing it I'm always the only person doing it and it's just the vet's office it's a really hard place to be for dogs but it's also a hard place to be for me and I know it is for you and the reason is we can both see how stressed these dogs are and we can see the mishandling of the stress. Like never in the history of ever has anyone calmed down when being told to calm down, for instance. I'm always tempted uh, to say, oh, does your dog speak English? Because my dog doesn't. <laughs> oh, could you come over here and tell my dog to calm down? It'll sure, it'll yes, certainly work. Right. Can um, you just explain to my dog that it's all going to be fine and it's not a big deal? <laughs> right. So, and you actually have a background in examining stress in dogs in the veterinary environment. So yeah, talk about that. That was my, that was my master's. So I started vet school in 2007. Vet school is usually four years. I took a year off in the middle of it to do the research and then went back. So it was a combined program and I graduated with a DVM and a master's. 
And what we were looking at, what we were looking at specifically was stress in dogs who are in the hospital. So we looked at dogs who were coming in for procedures where they stayed overnight. And in practice, I think 90% of them were dogs coming in with cruciate ligament disease for surgery the next day. What I find hilarious, so I, I wrote a paper about this and about the findings. And what I find hilarious is that I, when I was looking at the paper for this to review it, I was able to get the citation because I still remember it pretty well for this conversation. I discovered it's been cited 179 times, which is not bad. But hilariously, I don't think anyone yeah. has cited it for the reasons, the things that I, the things that I want people to have learned from it. I don't think anyone has learned from it. I think people just cite it as like you can measure cortisol in dogs. That's pretty much what they use it for. So, so basically, what we did was I video recorded the dogs for 20 minutes, and I took salivary I took a saliva sample and then measured the cortisol in the saliva sample and um, tried to see if there were correlations between the dog's behavior over that 20 minutes and their cortisol levels. And the goal had been to try to find out if there was a way that you could use behavior to identify, reliably identify dogs that were more stressed in the hospital. So that we, you know, the idea would be that we'd, we'd have basically a, like, if they're doing this, they're probably pretty stressed. So in that case, you would want to, I don't know, give them a sedative or let the techs know that the front of the cage should be covered or something like that. Right. Take whatever the, the measures would be that you would take. That would be a, a different a different study to figure out what the appropriate thing was, but to identify dogs that needed additional help. So one of the things that I found that I thought was really interesting that no one ever seems to have gotten from the paper is that in order you, you could use behavior to reliably predict uh, whether the cortisol levels were high or not, but you had to use the full 20 minutes of behavior to do it. When I took two minutes out because I thought that was reasonable. I thought a technician could be asked to look at a dog for two minutes to assess if it was stressed. I did not think it was going to be reasonable to ask a technician to stare at a dog for 20 minutes to assess if it was stressed. I didn't think that was ever going to happen. But I found that looking at them for two minutes, you couldn't assess whether they were stressed or not because they would just be doing all kinds of behaviors. You had to look at them for the full 20 minutes in order to see. So that was the first thing that I thought was interesting. Second thing that I thought was interesting, which is mostly more relevant for what we're talking about today, is that how high their cortisol levels went on average was comparable to this different study that someone else had done, but using exactly the same methodology, um, the same testing kit and everything. She had found, she had looked at cortisol levels of thunderstorm phobic dogs during a thunderstorm and the levels were comparable to what I was oh, finding. Like I literally was like, this is incredibly high. I was like, holy really crap, how is this so high? Yeah. That's so sad. That's heartbreaking, actually. I know. Oh, my goodness. The final thing that I found that I find interesting, but it's not super, super helpful. It's not helpful for identifying dogs who are not okay. But what I found, at least in that environment, kenneled dogs in a hospital without their owners, was that if they rest their chin on the floor or on their paws, they're okay. And this was almost 100% true. Now, some dogs who are okay don't, don't rest because there's stuff going on and they're interested in it. But if they did rest, Almost none of those dogs, I think actually none of those dogs had high cortisol levels. So, and That's I use that with my own dogs. Like I see if I'm, when I'm in a, you know, a veterinary clinic and I'm worried about Jenny, <laughs> she's the fearful one. Um, if she rests her chin, then I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. she's doing okay. That's actually an enormous piece of data. Like I'm going to think about that in a lot of different circumstances now. Yeah. And I would love to see the research done in other circumstances, right? So technically you shouldn't extrapolate, right? Technically, like maybe it's that you're leaving them alone for a couple of hours and it takes that long for them to get around to resting their chin. I don't know, but it is something that I, I probably inappropriately use to assess whether my dogs are okay. Well, here's the thing is if you are not doing damage otherwise, like for me, I'm thinking about observing and kind of going, okay, in this circumstance, how long does it take you to do that? And if that's pretty accessible for you of a behavior, then I can feel better about it than if that's not an accessible behavior for you. So I'm almost thinking yeah. about dogs that, you know, I talk a lot about dogs in crates at agility trials and what they look like in the crate. And I want people to pay attention to that. And what I usually am asking is, are they asleep? Like, do they sleep? Do they lie laterally? Like I'm asking those questions. I might just add the data point of like, do they rest their chin 
has. It's a good one. In the um, in my research, I only had one dog. I think bilaterally, and that dog was when I was getting so frantic to get enough enough dogs enrolled. It's a typical problem in clinical studies getting enough dogs enrolled. That I finally was asking clinicians who sort of had their dog, and so one ER vet had her dog in for the day, and I was like, "Can I video your dog?" Well, this dog was so comfortable with the hospital. He works um, there. there all the time. <laughs> this is his which, place you know, of employment. <laughs> right, right. And um, which which I was like, that's fine. Like, that'll give me the other end of the spectrum, right? And um, I still remember she's a lovely golden retriever. And um, this woman this woman just collected dogs. She's an ER vet, right? So these broken things would come in and she would hang on to them. And this dog just, just sacked out. <laughs> sort of like, why are you putting me in this different room? Well, no worries. That's actually... <laughs> That's really telling that the dog who literally goes to work there every single day was the only one that you saw bilateral. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. So, so that's your paper. And I, I'm a little bit frustrated that people don't cite it for the right reasons, but we can, it's we can fine. I just find it, I find it hilarious. I'm, I'm like, no, there's, there's actual interesting things in there. You're like, please read it a little bit more, but there are several and you, you know, we got talking about this and you pulled out several papers that exist just examining stress in the vet clinic. So you are who I like to talk to about scientific papers because then I don't have to try to figure out what they say. You just know <laughs> what they say. <laughs> so let's talk about. Yeah. And when we're assessing stress in dogs or in, well, I mean, it's, it's hard in humans too, right? Cause you can ask them what they're feeling, but you'd never know that what they say they're feeling is what you understand, you know, like, does, is the words, are the words describing the same things? But with animals, when we try to assess their stress base, the recommendation is basically to do a couple of different ways of doing it. So the way I did it right was I looked at behavior and then I also looked at cortisol levels. And so the recommendation is to look at, at multiple things. You wouldn't want to just look at cortisol levels or you wouldn't want to just look at behavior because neither of those are, are really sufficient on their own. It's also worth remembering that cortisol levels can go high for a bunch of different reasons. They go, they're elevated if you're hungry, if you're cold, if you're active, moving around. And then of course, if you have what we refer to as psychogenic stress, which is what we actually are interested in here, but it's hard, you know, you can't tell just from looking at the cortisol levels what it actually is. So it could be a bunch of different things. So I knew, I remember that there was a study and I went and looked, the, looked it up as a 2014 study. I remember this coming out a couple of years after mine did. And we'll put, I'll, I'll give you the references and you can put them in the show notes. But basically they looked at dogs who were waiting to be seen by the veterinarian and they had two groups of dogs. So they compared dogs who were waiting in the waiting room and then they had dogs that were outside, waiting outside. And they looked to see if there were differences between their heart rate and between and their cortisol com concentrations between the two different groups of dogs. And indeed, the dogs who were waiting inside did have higher cortisol concentrations. So again, like this is, it's one of those things where it's like, well, you could, you could find a variety of explanations for that. But to me, it seems very likely that what is going on is that dogs are a lot more stressed waiting in the waiting room than outdoors in a little grassy garden where they can sniff around. Which feels obvious. <laughs> but yeah, it, we <laughs> it's funny how we don't do anything about it though. It feels obvious. And what I think is interesting, I mean I think that's the question, is why don't we do anything about it? I think that boils down to whose responsibility is it to do something about it. We then put that responsibility squarely on the shoulder of the pet owner. Here's the problem with that. Pet owners barely know that, in fact, they don't know that like maybe a flexi leash isn't the best choice for the vet clinic. You know, they're going to choose the flexi because that's the leash they have. They, you know, are feeding this food because they've always fed this food and it's always worked for them, but their dog is clearly allergic to it. Like I can look at the dog and be like, wow, what's going on here? And I'm not even a doctor, but they're like, oh, but that food works. Like, it's just, there are so many yep. examples. Of it's you, hard to take you a cannot, step back. You, yeah. Placing it on the shoulder of the pet owner is not going to work. There's actually a 2015 paper that gets at exactly this. So this one they had, they were looking at dogs in the waiting room of a veterinary clinic and they had the owner observations and then they had uh, behavior consultant observations. And then I'm just going to, I'm going to read to you a quote from the abstract. It says the behaviorist evaluations 
were strongly correlated with the time spent by dogs showing signs of stress, moderately correlated with a number of displayed signs, whilst owners' evaluations were not closely correlated to those factors. Dogs rated as highly stressed by the behaviorist were more prone to display resistance, halting, refusing to budge when moving from the waiting room to the consultation room. So the results of the study support that owners are unable to accurately assess stress in their dogs in such situations, which again, we'll say not all owners. Some owners are, are good at it. Hashtag, hashtag not all owners. But again, you know, think of the, especially if you are the kind of person who listens to this podcast, you have seen situations, you have seen dogs in situations that you've gone, ugh, that's a bad situation with that dog. And the owner has no idea. And the more kind of in public you are out with people and their dogs, the more of it that you will see. I'm thinking of, in particular, dogs around small children and how I can see how stressed the dog is. And everybody else just thinks everything is fine here. And look how cute that dogs and kids are together. And right, like placing the responsibility on the shoulder of the pet owner is just going to fail for a number of reasons. Yeah. But it's not clear who the, there's not a person who's there to take the responsibility currently, which is what bothers me. We were, right. um, I was reminded. So I, I mean, I think we're going to, we're going to move on to, to talking about how the dog does when they are taken away from the owner. But I, this reminds me of a, the conversation I had with Jenny's surgeon when, so she had surgery to remove the mask before we started chemo. And I was very concerned about how she would do. She had to be there overnight, <laughs> which I, you know, they don't know what she was like when I got her 13 years ago. She's made a lot of improvements, but she's very anxious around strangers. And so when the surgeon first, um, they brought her in, they thought I was a weirdo for insisting on her staying in the car until they were absolutely ready to take her in for the surgery. They, I was not going to, to leave her to wait in the kennel until, until surgery time. But, um, so they took her in, they took her straight in to get her pre-med and get her IV catheter put in. And the surgeon came out to let me know how she did. And he said she was fine. And, um, I said, that's, that's funny because usually she's trembling when stuff like that happens. And he said, oh, well, she was buzzing like a little bee. And, um, and I, and I was like, what does fine mean to you? (laughs) Like, that's pretty obvious. I mean, when, Sarah, you mentioned that people don't always read dog body language. The nice thing about Jenny is she's super clear. Anyone can read her body language, in my opinion. Like trembling is something that should not be hard to read. But the surgeon didn't think that was important. And I don't know whether he recognized that she was stressed, but judged that it wasn't a big deal and didn't want to to say to me that she was stressed, right? Because he didn't want me to know. Or whether he... I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I just had trouble wrapping my head around it. We would have to ask him, right? But right. <laughs> my, in my experience, because I have talked to uh, veterinarians and technicians as well, kind of about these things. And the problem, usually the folks I'm talking to do understand it and do see it. I, there's always this kind of cost benefit analysis for the veterinarian to tell you that the dog was quite stressed versus not. Because if, Every other vet you've ever seen was like, they did great. Here you go. And then this vet is like, oh, she was pretty stressed. What are you, then your judgment is about this scenario, this vet, this situation was obviously bad for your dog. Like it is easier to just say she did fine. And it is simpler to just say she did fine. And I find this in other establishments, boarding kennels, daycares, like the communication about how stressed the dog actually is does not get relayed to the person, to the owner, whether the staff can see it or not. And I don't even think it's intentional dishonesty. Like, I don't think it's deception. I think it's just, it's easier for us to just not go there. So whose responsibility is it is the question that the problem is that like, There isn't a clear answer to that. What I would love is for folks who are kind of designing a veterinary experience for their clients and their pets to take this research into account, to have a sniffy garden for people to wade in with dogs, to, you know, I've been in really fancy vet hospitals that 
the budget was certainly there, but instead they've got a tropical fish tank, right? Like, and that's for the humans. <laughs> and fine, the humans are stressed too. So great, tropical fish tank is helpful. But I know what a tropical fish tank costs and you could have had a sensory garden for the dogs. Like I'm just, just putting it out there. So sensory garden for the dogs or kind of the next little bit that we're going to get into there is actually a new chain of veterinary uh, emergency clinics that are designed to have the human stay with the dog the entire time. That's taking this the research that we have into account. So for me, it's about, it has to come from up top. I don't think it lands on the pet owner. If you are a pet owner and you're listening to this, you probably already try to stay with your dog, leave the dog in the car while you wait, you know, those kinds of things. If you don't, Think about it. Even if you think your dog is fine, right? Once again, even the dogs that are like not super stressed, like Ray is not super stressed by anything, my Icelandic, but I don't make her wait in the lobby. Why would I make her even a little more stressed than she has to be about being at the vet? She doesn't wait in the lobby either. Yeah. Having, having protocols in place, I think make everything more straightforward. So I, I honestly would have the receptionists understand that the protocol is that they encourage dogs to wait in the car and that if anyone is uncomfortable about whether the car is going to be a safe place, then the humans wait in the car as well. And that we just call on the phone when we're ready and the humans bring the dog back in then. And the receptionist should not have to assess whether the dog is stressed or not, but they should be empowered to say no flexi leads, right? There was, there was one time recently I was in without a dog, just picking up meds for Jenny and I is at my the general practitioner where we usually go and I open the door and there's a dog right there. Like if I'd been coming in with a dog, it, it would have been a problem. <laughs> the dog was literally standing with its nose up against the door and the human at the other end of the flexi lead is trying to check out and obviously not paying attention to the dog because they're trying to check out. Right. I get that. But I would really love the receptionist to have been empowered to say, Hey, you know, we can, well, one thing is you can leave your dog in the car and then you can come back and check out. There have been some places where, you, you know, they bring you into the exam room and then the receptionist comes back in with the credit card machine and checks you out in the exam room so the dog can be off leash with you while you're checking out, which I think is just brilliant. There's none of this crap about having to have the dog on leash and you have to sign the credit card with one hand while you're holding the dog's leash with another hand and you're having to use your eyes to look at your signature and also use your eyes to make sure your dog is not like blocking the door so other dogs can't come in, right? Like I, just make it yes. easy for people. So this Just comes have down the protocol to... in place. Everybody does it. All behavior change looks like this. Make the behaviors you want easier to access and make the behaviors you don't want harder to access. And what that means is encouraging folks to, yeah, go put the dog in the car and come back in and check out or go ahead and go load your dog. We'll be right. We'll be right behind you with the credit card machine. Like you guys, they've got people doing this at fast food restaurants. Like obviously we can do this at a vet clinic. And, or I've even had, you know, in COVID, I think we really learned what all is possible about not having humans and their dogs in the clinic. During COVID, I checked out over the phone. I, you know, basically didn't walk in a vet clinic. My dog was handed over when they were ready for me. Like all this is very possible. All this, like, it just has to be protocols and made status quo. And it just has for to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. It just has to be normalized. And for, you know, <laughs> veterinary medicine tries to be, wants to be informed by science, having people sitting around in the lobby with their dogs attached to them is not being informed by the research that exists. So let's jump into, I am that client that wants to stay with my dog all the time. And <laughs> I realize that that's obnoxious for a lot of people in a lot of clinics. Luckily, yeah. I tend I tend to find teams that are really good with me where it, where it winds up being a problem is when I have to go to a specialist or something that I don't know. So let, what do we know about people staying with their dog versus not? So I have two more papers and, and there were, you know, I sort of did, I did not do a super deep dive by the way, in finding all the papers. I think there were some more out there, um, but these were the ones that were the most obviously useful. So there's a 2018 paper, which is about 
whether people brought their dogs directly in to have surgery and dropped the dog off and the dog waited in the kennel, which is how the veterinary staff typically wants you to do it because it's a lot easier for them. If you just drop the dog off, you get out of their face and then they can, whenever they're ready, they just go get the dog, right? Um, and certainly when I was in vet school, that was how we did it. And then the other alternative was people held on to their dogs and they were notified, okay, you know, we're ready for the dog now, which is what I insisted on doing with Jenny. And then they bring the dog in, the dog goes straight in to anesthesia rather than having to wait in a kennel for an hour or so. So here again, they compared cortisol levels on two groups of dogs, the dogs that were asked to wait and the dogs that were able to wait with their owners. And they saw higher cortisol levels in the dogs that were asked to wait in the veterinary clinic. Again, no big surprise. They did other measurements as well, which we don't, which I approve of, but I'm not going to go into in details what other things they, they looked at there. And then um, the other one was they actually had um, looked at dogs who were getting a physical exam from a veterinarian in a clinic. And in this case, the, the closest I could find was they actually had owners present um, in both groups, which I would have liked a comparison of the owners not being present. But they had, um, owners were always present, but one group, the owners were allowed to touch the dogs and the other, the owners were asked to step back and not touch the dog. So you'd imagine that this would be like, you know, when they're giving the dog the exam, are you allowed to help restrain? Are you sitting there with your hand on the dog? And again, where we don't, you know, I'm lucky I'm a veterinarian and my, once I tell people that they let me restrain my own dogs because they know I'm not going to suddenly let go and let the dog bite them. They know that I know what I'm doing. Um, and I totally get how it's, you don't actually want the client necessarily restraining, but then you also, if there's someone restraining and someone doing the procedure, you don't want the client also in there with their hand on the dog. But what they found was that the dogs where the owners were not touching them, there was more lip licking, higher heart rates and higher temperatures and more attempts to jump off the table. I'm going to actually tell you, this is one of my high points in vet school was during uh, the lecture where we were learning about anesthesia and they were teaching us about how when the dog is waking up and the dog's like on a table, you want to keep your hand on the dog as they're waking up because, because she says the, the clinician says, as she's teaching us this big class of like a hundred people, she says, how would you feel if the dog woke up and, and slipped off the table and broke their leg? What would you tell the owners? And I piped up in the middle of this class and said, I would tell them they had a very bad dog. <laughs> <laughs> this sense of humor that I appreciate about you has been a, a long run. It's, it's always been around. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really funny. I was pretty proud of myself. Yeah. How what, did that go over? Well, did. Yeah, it did. did it did. Laugh? Everybody laughed. <laughs> You have a very bad dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was partly funny because that is kind of the veterinary perception. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, the joke had a lot of depth to it there, Sarah. <laughs> Lots of depth in that. The veterinary joke. perception is that if a dog behaves like that, they are being bad and, and that you should blame the dog, right? Like that was, yep. I don't know that it, that it's still quite like this, but, um, you know, so when I was in vet school, as I said, from 2007 to 2012, there was just a lot of owners don't know what they're doing and dogs should shut up and, and let you uh, manhandle them however you want. And if they don't, Absolutely. they're bad. And there's a total lack of understanding. Like there was the dog that I saw that came in and the owner, it was a weird case, right? The owner said, sometimes the dog vomits. And when she is going to need to vomit, she knows she needs to go outside and eat grass, but it was middle of winter and there was snow. So there was no grass. So the dog was like snuffling as if she was eating grass around the house. And the owner's like, she ate something that's bad and she's painful, right? So the dog comes in. We know the dog's painful. This is what the dog is presenting for. The dog is uncomfortable in some way. And the vet is giving the dog a physical exam and the vet and the dog tries to snap at the vet. She's a resident, an ER resident. So, you know, not in front of the owner, but, oh, the dog's so bad. What a bad dog, you know, just terrible dog. Be careful. And I was like, the dog's painful. What's wrong with you? So then we take radiographs and the dog had inhaled a needle, which was stuck like, it was like at the intersection between the nose and the mouth and the back, right? The sort of nasal pharynx area back in there. And we actually, one of the other residents was actually like, once we knew they were able to open the dog's mouth enough that he could see it and pull it out. So it was a happy ending. And so then... <laughs> And the resident who'd been like, what a bad dog is like, oh my God, who was to know there was a needle in there. Now I understand. And I was like, you knew the owner told you what is wrong with you? Like I just, the level of lack of understanding that dogs have their own experience and maybe reacting for some reason. And it's not all about you just floored me. It's just repeating yeah. how 
lack of understanding. It's it's something that I try to give the staff as much information as I can, but it's also why I, it's, it's one of the many reasons I try to stay with the dog is that for instance, with Iggy, I had a day at the vet where I don't know, like four, I had four or five dogs that needed to be seen because of course, and Iggy, they needed to take blood from Iggy. And you don't have five dogs. I, well, I have, I used to at the time. Okay. Go on. Yeah. So I left Iggy. I basically was like, I'll be right back. And I needed to go get another two. And I didn't know that they were going to do something. And I came back in and they had Iggy on the table and they were trying to crank her neck back to do a jugular blood draw. And Iggy has cervical IVDD and she was fighting them. And I said, Whoa, I was like, stop. I was like, stop right now. And I was like, the dog has cervical IVDD. That's actually right there in front of your face in her chart. I was not nice. (laughs) I was like, she's fighting you because you're hurting her. You don't take blood from her neck, put her on the floor. Like I, anyway, now, you know, I'm, I was mad at myself that I didn't say anything up front, but I, you know, in hindsight, I, who, who do I get, who do I choose to be mad at in the moment? So I, but how could you imagine that you would leave the dog alone and that's when they would choose to go well, draw blood? Well, that's the thing. Well, and that's the thing is like, because they're used to it. They're like, right. they're always doing it. And it, you know, it is typical for them to take dogs in the back and do those kinds of things. And so now I'm, if I'm in a situation where I have to hand her over, which I've been in that situation a few times, she had to be hospitalized once. Like, I mean, there's, I always say like, a jugular blood draw is not going to work for you because you can't crank her neck back like that. And I also say this dog will not fight you on anything unless it is a real problem. So if she is fighting you, you need to find a different way to do it. Like it doesn't matter what it is. If she's struggling or fighting, she's telling you something loud and clear. And what I wish was that that were a more commonplace perception of all dogs in front of your face. But I also recognize Like I'm holding both truths that I want this industry to operate in a more compassionate way towards dogs. And I also recognize how overworked and stressed and underpaid Mm -hmm. the staff is. And both of those things are true. Yeah. And it's very normalized. Yeah. When I went to vet school, so when I started, I was 33. So I was 11 years older than the, you know, sort of the expectation. Not everybody was, you know. But the majority of my class were 22 fresh out of college. So I had more life experience under my belt. I also had a crap ton of more behavior, dog behavior experience under my belt Mm -hmm. than everybody else did because I came in being interested in behavior and and thinking I was going to be a veterinary behaviorist. And it's so, yeah. So similarly, I think it's, it's important to recognize that most people going through vet school get very little... Uh, in the way of explanation of what dog body language means and also get a lot of, it's not intentional. They're not, you know, there's not a class where you're taught to not pay attention to the owner, Mm. but the the (laughs) culture, there's not, I kept waiting for it, but the culture, right? So there was, I just, there was this one time that it was so clear. I don't remember why this was. I remember we were in a, lecture hall. And I remember that there were two ER residents who were talking about some case that they had seen. So this was one of those sort of more fun times for us, right? It wasn't like a heavy duty lecture about anatomy or, you know, specific pharmacology or anything like that. This is more like what you always look forward to, like, oh, they had this case. And so they're sort of playing off each other, much the way you and I do. And one of them said, oh, yes. And then when the owners finally coughed up the information, just remember that phrase. And I just remember being like that right there. That's where we learn it is, you know, they're not intentionally telling us to distrust owners or think that owners are keeping information from us or that owners don't know things. But it's that kind of phrasing in veterinary school that that culture is self-reinforcing. Man, this is not what we meant for this to be about. We meant for this to be we we did not mean to go here, but we did. And but we did. And, so uh, I want to say just like- yeah, something you and I were talking about right before we started um, recording, where we were remembering the story that I had told earlier on the recording here about the surgeon saying that Jenny was okay, and I was like, "But wasn't she trembling?" Oh, yes, she was trembling. 
and the perception of what is okay. And something that we said then that we didn't manage to repeat here was that I think what we're taught in vet school is if the dog tries to bite you, that's not okay. Everything else is okay. And that's what you were saying about Iggy as well, is if the dog allows the people to do it, then it's okay. And if they fight it, then it's a bad dog. But there's, there's not a space for, there's body language. The dog is explaining that it's not comfortable with it, with that. And I'm going to respect that. Yes. And I think, yeah, just in terms of, I don't think that Iggy is less stressed by the veterinarian than Felix is. She just expresses it differently. She is a lot more compliant. She just is. She's not going to get, she's not going to jump to aggression the way that he will. And so (laughs) I do think perhaps another day we can talk all about advocating for your dog in the veterinary setting and like what all of that can look like. But coming back, kind of the final point on the culture here, because you, you experienced it, you saw it. I know that I've experienced it. I have looked at a veterinarian and said, I'm not like all of your other clients and you need to stop treating me like I'm a common idiot. (laughs) I think his, the color drained from his face and he started changing the way that he was speaking to me. Okay. Um, impressive. Th- then soon I left and then didn't give him any more money. But <laughs> it's the, the culture here, I think everybody can also put their finger on the pulse of that in specific hospitals and clinics, because I've certainly been like the culture within the actual hospital that you are using matters a ton. And there are places that have a culture that is very respectful and very compassionate And I want to reward those places. And that's where you should be putting your business. Like if you feel disrespected, it's not a place for you. And also I do want to, you know, because I, because we're saying a lot of stuff here that I could already feel the emails coming in. I just want to put out a blanket. Like this is not actually an anti-vet podcast. You're a veterinarian. I have a lot of veterinarians in my life who I love very, very much and who I appreciate beyond anything. And I do recognize how tough it is to work in that field. I just feel, I actually feel like it would make everybody's life easier if this research informed the way that Mm -hmm. hospitals operated. I don't just think this is for dogs. I don't just think this is for owners. I actually think when you are working on animals that are less stressed, your job is easier. Yeah, I think it's, you know, this all ties in both to the crisis, the current crisis of lack of care where there's not enough veterinarians. And that is because they are leaving in droves because it's actually a miserable job. And the crisis of veterinary suicide that one of my teachers killed herself while I was in veterinary school. One of the residents killed herself during my internship. That's, it's very common. So it's a, it's a tough job. And I do think that the way that we set vets up to be adversarial to owners um, in the back and treat owners like children in the front is not their fault. It's this culture that they are raised in, but it doesn't help anybody. It certainly doesn't help them. It doesn't. And I, you know, the, it's a real tragedy what's going on in the field. We are having this conversation today because we think that this would help everybody. Is this going to solve the problems? No, because I think a lot of it's, capitalism problem. (laughs) But but it would, when I've been in clinics where the culture was really respectful, really compassionate, that's also coworkers to coworkers, compassion and respect. I don't ask anybody what they get paid, but I get a sense that people are not sleeping in their car because they can actually afford rent, you know, things like that. Like it is all of that stuff matters. And so bringing this research kind of to the forefront. And you could even, you know, say like if somebody, you know, not in an emergency situation, not when the, your dog's leg is falling off and you need to hand them over at the e-clinic, but ahead of time, when you are vetting an office, like when you are deciding if you're going to hire these people, just kind of say, I prefer to stay with my dog. Here are the reasons, like, would that be okay with you guys? And they might come back and know it's our, it's our clinic standard practice that you don't stay with the dog. Here's, here's our reasons for that. If you really want to use them, you could say, you know, are you aware of these papers? Like you could, if it is a, you know, clinic wide practice that no, you're, you can't, then you might want to move on. Right. But I think that, you know, research is kind of 
worthless if we don't let it inform better choices going forward. So we went down quite a rabbit hole there as we do. I mean, if anybody's surprised, if anybody's surprised, then maybe just go listen to all the other episodes (laughs) that we've done (laughs) and see what happened. But we really sat down to talk about two things, the way that we make our dogs wait for procedures and whether or not we stay with them through procedures. I am that person. I am that owner that the dogs are waiting in the car until it's time for them to be seen. Even on surgery days and things like that, if I can make it happen, I try not to hand them over. And just by the way, that's also how it works when you're a human having surgery. They want you to check in and then they put you in like a little stall with a curtain around you. But the difference is if you're freaking out, they start your meds. Um, and I've and been in kind of both. You know what's going on. You've chosen to be there. I mean, lots of differences. But <laughs> if you're me and you are breaking out in a stress rash and um, not fine, they're going to put Versed in your body and you are then going to relax. So <laughs> just speaking from experience. <laughs> I'm the opposite. I'm like, don't give me that stuff. Don't. I don't want it. <laughs> I need to stay alert. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like, last time it, you gave me that stuff, I forgot like half of half of a day. Because I don't want to do things. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> That's interesting. That's funny. No, I'm like, every time they come near me, <laughs> with a, get away from me. With a needle. I'm like, what's in it? <laughs> Well, and again, dogs also don't have that choice. And I've certainly had, um, you know, I've had client dogs who freaked out more on certain meds that are supposed to make things easier for them and things like that. So I am that owner who I think a lot of people, a lot of veterinarians and vet staff see me as just kind of trying to make their job hard. But it seems like the research says I'm right. (laughs) So let's talk about what maybe is the best practice? Like if you're listening to this podcast and you would like to help your dog in these specific ways, be less stressed at the vet, what are the simple things we can do? So there's, I mean, I think we've gone over a bunch of them, right? So there's, don't let the, don't let the dog wait in the waiting room, find a way. And that can be waiting in the car with the dog. Some, sometimes they will have an extra exam room and they'll put you in the room early. So I often will ask, do you have an exam room open? And sometimes they'll be like, sure, in you go. They don't always have one, but that can be a better option. I still think at least for my dogs who are used to the car, the car is better than, than the exam room even so. Because the, the exam room is still, you hear people in the hallway and there's still stuff going on. But it's also it's better than the waiting room for sure. Prior to surgery, having that conversation where you say, I am happy to wait with my dog in the car and be right there and be ready to bring them in as soon as you're ready for them. And when that, when I did that, they thought I was a little weird and they wanted me to know that it might be several hours. And I said, that's fine. <laughs> I sat in the waiting room and messaged you about how no one else was doing anything similar. And so if you're, if you're the person, I think doing those things, if you are someone who runs a veterinary clinic, I do think setting procedures in place where it's just very easy for the the waiting room staff to not have to make any judgments about whether this dog or this person needs it, but just to be able to say, you know, what if when you first made your appointment, they said, when you first check in, call from your car. That's how we do it. That's how we did it during COVID, right? What if they, and then when you called to check in, they said, you know, We'll be ready for you in a few minutes. It's up to you, but a lot of dogs are more comfortable waiting in the car. And if you'd like to do that, we'll call you when you're ready. What if they just made it easy for people? Yeah, I, again, during COVID, there was a sign on the door that said, you know, no entry, call us from your car. Yep. It could say, it could say, if you've not checked in yet, don't bring the dog in. And like all your reminder calls could say, please check in without your dog. You can do that by calling or by leaving yep. the dog in the car and coming in. Just please check in without the dog would be a huge change. And yeah, again, I so. yeah, we, I, we I did it. So many we did it during COVID. People, people are just not able to manage their dogs and, and manage talking to the receptionist. And that's normal. It's hard to do. Yeah. And it would be, I mean, I've seen very stressed dogs, dog to dog altercations in sure. the waiting room. It's just not, it's not a great place to, to be hanging out with, with the dog. And again, I think that it's just too normalized. Like my dog's stress for me is not normalized. It upsets me. I don't want to see it. I am avoiding it at all costs. Therefore, no, I'm not going to be 
sitting in the lobby watching their stress bubble and bubble and, you know, get to a different level. I recently was sitting in the lobby waiting to be told to go get my dog and a woman was sitting there. This is not even a joke. She had two bulldogs on flexies, heavy breathing as bulldogs do, very stressed, scrambling on the slick floor, which is Mm -hmm. just another personal pet peeve of mine that all the floors have to be an ice rink for dogs. But they're just, I'm like, these dogs are asking to be nailed by the first dog that walks in here that's got even a little bit of dog feelings because they're bulldogs, they're making noises, they're scrambling around. <laughs> like, I'm like, this is just a whole bad situation. So one thing that we can do is not bring our dog in when we check in. But the other, the, if you do run a clinic, you could attempt to kind of change the culture around this in your clinic. Yeah, for sure. What, what about staying with our dogs? Give us some language for that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't cracked that nut. Maybe you have. I mean, the best I can come up with is to ask ahead of time and not use that clinic. For me, it's hard enough to find someone that I feel like is going to do a really good job that that is not what, no, to be fair, I forget to ask ahead of time. So the clinic I've been taking Jenny to, they do not let me stay with her. One of the reasons I tolerate that though, is that they actually convincing, they actually convinced me that she was okay by telling me she fell asleep in the back. I mean, that's pretty good. That convinced me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty good. okay, then she's fine. If I really thought she was back there shaking and, you know, we talked about, you know, so, so one thing is we talked about sedating her one time when she needed to be left for chemo and I wasn't sure that she'd be fine. Um, so you can certainly talk to them about giving your dog something to take the edge off before they come in. And a lot of clinics are very comfortable with that. Um, mm-hmm. And then she needed to be there for a while for chemo. So we talked about sedating her. So, I, and I'm always very upfront about if this dog is having any trouble at all, you can sedate them. I'm, I am going to okay that, you yeah. know, you don't have to call me first. You can just do it. Yeah. So there's that. But I think it's it's frustrating to me that even though they know I'm a veterinarian and that gets me through the door more times than other people, there are still times that they're just like, nope, nope, it's policy. What's interesting to me is that at the referral clinic I've been at recently, the ER would let me in, but internal medicine and, and oncology would not. And so it's it's not always clinic wide. But Yeah. So I haven't cracked that nut, but I think you're right that asking ahead of time and then making your decision based on that, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to find a place that did let me in. I do think it's different when it's a specialty. Yeah. I think having those conversations should be part of deciding who your GP is, like who you're seeing on a regular basis should, that should be one of the deciding factors. Like I, that's fair. I would not have stayed with my GP if they didn't let me be with my dogs. Yeah. Pretty much. And so uh, same. It's just, that's just how it is. And so there's that. Then with the specialty situation, I think, yes, it's best to have the conversation ahead of time because everybody kind of feels rushed when you're trying to have it then. But it can kind of go like this. I prefer to stay with her. And these are the reasons why. Is that something that's possible with you guys? And if they say no, then I say, okay, then talk to me about what what medication she can have on board for what's going on. And just kind of having that conversation sometimes open the, opens the door to them being a little bit more understanding of what you need. It is true that they don't, I do find it's pretty typical with chemo that they don't want you in there. And it's, uh, I don't know. And that's fair. Would you ac- yeah. accidentally stab yourself with the chemo needle? And then, I mean, it could, it could I happen. Also, I was less concerned about chemo because that's something where she's, she's going to be doing it repeatedly. And so I feel like she has a chance to get to know yeah. people when it's, I also get the, it was, it's funny that the ER let me come in, although this was, that was with Fitz and it wasn't like he'd been hit by a car or anything. I get I get that when the dog is, you know, there's some sort of trauma or something, it's not at all reasonable to no, expect to totally understand that stuff going on. I get that. Yeah. You do kind of have to accept it, but a conversation about what's acceptable to you and what's not then has to be had. Yeah. Like so where, like I'm what gonna, kinds of things, I think yeah. it is useful for us to make clear what kinds of things we really 
are advocating you being with your dog for? Yeah. What kinds of and things I, we're advocating? Well, so there are some procedures for which it kind of doesn't make sense for you to be there. Like we're not saying go wrestle your way into the back for everything. Like what are some things that it makes sense for you to be allowed to be there? And what are some things that it doesn't make sense for you to be allowed to be there? Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be different by practice. Unfortunately, I'm just, I'm remembering when I was in vet school and they had put the ophthalmology department literally in what used to be a closet. And so they would have the attending resident and three vet students and the dog in the closet. You couldn't (laughs) fit the owner in there as well. Right. One time it was a baby alpaca. That was fun. Anyways. So so sometimes, sometimes it's they just literally, literally don't space. Have yeah, sometimes um, they just don't have the yeah. space. Other times it's not going to be it's not going to be safe. Like it's kind of we've all watched Grey's Anatomy and somebody comes in because they've got I don't, a sword through their heart or something. And <laughs> very and common, very and common. It's, and it's get the wife out of here. <laughs> because we have to pull this sword. <laughs> So if your dog is a yeah. in in their um, body, probably you have to get out. Yes, that's what yes. we learned. So that's it, what we learned. The ER, the ER can be a funny one, right? Like sometimes there's just crap going on in the ER, and they can't have people there. And here again, I think it's you know this you know some people are able to cope with that, and some people are are not. If you see blood and gore, um, and they don't know which you're going to be, and that's fair. Um, they also just don't want you around while they're dealing with that. And that's fair. Sometimes the ER is not that, though. Um, sometimes the ER is they just need to give your dog a physical exam, right? And so there again, it's nice if the practice is able to say. So again, when I was in vet school, the ER physical, there was the one big ER space. And there could be the dog with the sword through its heart, which I never actually saw. But that would be in the same space. I did see the dog that had been horribly mangled by being hit by a car mm-hmm. and um, trying to save its life and everybody panicking about that. Like you definitely don't want owners around while you're doing that. Right. And so that was the right. same space where you would bring a dog back just to do a physical exam and figure out what was going on. And so all of that would be happening together. And so that was, you know, you didn't, you weren't able to have owners come back, but at some point they started realizing that they could, Um, Just for the physical exam portion, they could, maybe they could go do that in a room. It doesn't actually have to be in the ER, right? Um, And so that is nice if you are able to establish ahead of time that that's the kind of thing that, you know, the owner could come be, be along for. So that might be something where you would want to figure out what the ERs local to you are ahead of time and what their practices are in that area. For sure. So it's like an exam, regardless of kind of why the exam is happening, blood, blood draw vaccines. Like these are things that it's perfectly reasonable for you to want to be there. Things like x-rays, you can't be near the x-ray machine. Like that's a thing. Right. Like that's, they're going to have to take them and put them on the x-ray machine because they don't want the liability of you having the radiation. Like that's very real. I have had my dogs. With x-rays, I think there again, it's good. I'm, I always, I'm very proactive with radiographs saying you can sedate the dog. You don't have to ask me. It's totally fine with me if you sedate the dog. Um, they don't want the text being in the path of the x-rays either. And so right. the way they try to do it is they get the dog into position on the little table, right? And then they like put sort of weights on top of them to hold them in position. And then um, you sort of leap back and take the picture. Yep. Um, yep. And... In vet school, again, I remember there was one time that the ER clinician was like, I'm not going to let you sedate this 18-month-old Wrigley Lab. And she's like, you, you don't have to sedate that dog. Just get the picture. And so we irradiated that dog like 15 times trying to get the picture. And maybe it would have been better if the dog had just been sedated up front. So there again, I'm very, I'm like, you can just sedate so- this dog. I do not mind. We're going to jump in then. You you just started the segue because <laughs> this is what I want to talk about. If you want to be with the dog, that's great. I want you to try to be with them. There's another piece to this that's really important, which is that you're not going to be able to be with them all the time. And so you need to be clear with the staff about sedation and about what your line is for the sedation. Because yeah. if you're not extremely clear 
if they hadn't prepared to sedate the dog, it's now going to take them time to sedate the dog. And it might be time that they are not, they haven't allotted to this appointment. Like it's, it screws up the entire day. If we now need to wait for this dog to go down in order to put it on the table, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I want to have that, those conversations up front as well. And here's how I do it. And I would love to know how you do it, but I have a rule, which is that nothing should take more than two people touching my dog. If you, if a tech, I, I expect maybe one person to do a thing and the other person to hold the dog. If it takes more than two people, I want sedation with, I cannot think of an exception right now. That's a good rule. Because if it takes two people to restrain my dog, my dog's too upset. I want them sedated. There might be a situation where, no, honestly, I can't think of one where more than two people does not equal sedation for me. So I literally say those words to them. I say, if something is requiring more than two people, I would like sedation. I am pretty solidly pro sedate for x-rays in general. Like I want them to get what they need. I want them to have good x-rays. I don't know how many times <laughs> um, the sports medicine vet has been reviewing the x-rays and been like, these are trash. We can't use these. <laughs> Obviously the dog wasn't sedated. <laughs> so I, I, like you said, I don't want the dog radiated for an extra 20 minutes because we couldn't get what we needed. Like I want the x-rays to be good and I want the dog to be not stressed. And so I'm pretty pro sedation for x-rays. But if it takes more than two people is my kind of general across the board rule. And then I also, you know, I explained to them that if the dog is struggling such that you need to add that other person to restrain, like that's why I'm saying this. That's why this is the rule. I don't want them struggling like that. Again, this is about what they've normalized. For them, needing to call in a, a, an assistant or a second tech to hold a dog to get something done is very normal. And I want to express that it's not that it's not what I want as their as their client. Not that they're doing their job wrong, not that that's just not okay for my precious fluffy, but just that I'm the paying client. What I want is for the dog to be sedated if it takes more than two people. And then I also know, because I do most of the handling of my dogs in a vet clinic, what they can do and what they can't. And I know what's going to need sedation and what's not. And I also know what's going to be fine with just like an oral pre-med versus an actual injectable. Like there's, I'm really familiar with all of that and I don't expect everybody to be. So do you have some like language or general rules or do you just basically say, listen, I'm happy with you to sedate them. Like, please sedate them. <laughs> Always sedate. Yeah. So it's, I was just thinking of the irony as you were talking is that, so I get away with some things because I'm a veterinarian and they yeah. know that I'm not going to freak out. On the other hand, there are ways in which I am less forceful because there's an expectation that I know how hard the other person's job is, which I do. Yep. Yep. And that I'm, I'm going to understand how things are done and I'm not going to try to push people to do anything differently. And I certainly could just be like, nope, I'm a client right now. Like, you know, I could say things like, here's the rule. It's going to be this many people, which by the way, I think is a great approach for you. But ironically, the approaches that I take do tend to be a little bit more gentle because I have this somewhat different relationship, right? Where I have to, I'm mm -hmm. trying to maintain this mutually sort of professional courtesy relationship, which gets me some, <laughs> some access to being with the dog if I play it right. It, it right? buys you more. Like you it um, buys me more, but there's things I can't do. Right. And this is where, like, I have a really good relationship with my GP. And so, I'm just, I'm serving as the technician nine times out of 10. Like usually there's not right. even a tech in the room when I'm there. Yeah. I'm doing the stuff. We know who needs, who's going to have pre-meds, who's going to have actual sedation for yeah, everything. Same. Like we just, yeah, it's, it's already really when you go well decided. It's when you hand the dog over and you can't be with them that I say, listen, yeah. I've got a rule about this. I'm yeah. very pro sedation. I will even, and it does get me in the door when I like rattle off the med names and I say, this is what we've used successfully. Like that, like mm -hmm. if they look at you and ask if you're in the medical field, you're, you're talking correctly. Like <laughs> you have practiced, <laughs> you, yeah, you are think, ready. I think that's a good point is being very clear that you know what the medication is and what things are going to look like and that you're okay yes. with that. It yes. helps, helps them to trust that you 
are not going to be like, wait a minute. I meant, what do you I mean? You, you know, I said sedation was okay. I didn't mean sedation was okay. Um, <laughs> no, but they're like, which clients I thought you would- do, do sometimes, by the way. I know right? they do. I know. But they're like, I thought you would just give them CBD. Right. (laughs) Although then, then, and and the, on the human side, I have people sometimes tell me things like, we're going to do this procedure just under a little light sedation. And then they pull out propofol. There was one time where I sat someone down and I was like, this is the propofol is fine. And I'm not complaining about the propofol, but please don't tell me it's going to be light you're sedation, like, light like, sedation <laughs> when it's propofol, which is actually anesthesia. I said, if what you mean is that you're only taking me to a light plane of anesthesia, that's fine. But I know what you're effing talking about. So don't tell me it's light sedation when it's propofol anyways. But what I, the story I was, I wanted to tell you was about when Dash was young and he, I think many people know the story about how he broke this tiny little bone in his elbow. It took me a really long time to get it diagnosed, not for lack of trying. But there was one time when we were once again getting radiographs and um, with a specialty vet, an orthopedic specialist, and they were going to, you know, and he had come in, met Dash and Dash is so sweet, right? And Dash was like, I love you. I love you. I love you. And they're going to take him in the back for radiographs without me. And I was like, and I said what I say, which is do not hesitate to sedate him. It is, you're probably going to have to sedate him. Don't hesitate. And this guy mocked me. He was like, we're not going to have to sedate this sweet dog. And I was like, "Mm." and then 10 minutes later, the tech came back in and said, well, we sedated him. And I was like, I know. So sometimes- you know, sometimes they're like challenge accepted. And I'm like, I don't, this is not a challenge. Like, please. Not a challenge. Feel free. Please. Yeah. That, that guy was really surgeons, particularly I find I've had this experience with multiple surgeons where they are not very understanding of the fact that the dog that they see is not the complete dog. And that when I talk about how the dog is on behavior medication, like at that time, Dash was on some behavior meds and the surgeon was like, whoa, you know what? And I was like, you're not seeing the full dog. How you see him when he's stressing up and being very licky and sweet in your clinic is not what I see throughout his whole life. And a a lot of, I shouldn't pick on surgeons, but a lot of veterinarians don't get that. So something to remember that if they don't trust you, sometimes just saying, here's what you have permission to do, go do what you feel is right can be sometimes your best option. I think that is a good place to wrap it up. You and I could rant for another, you know, hour. I think do you have a final I wanna I wanna do a quick shout out for Fear Free. Okay. That is one thing that I do is try to find a fear free clinic. There's not that many of them. There's more than there were. But that definitely gives you a leg up. It doesn't fix all of the problems, but if you go to a fear-free clinic, you're much likely to, more likely to see them using food and saying that it's okay for you to restrain the dog and things like that. That can help a lot. And then I think you wanted to mention this new emergency practice that yeah, is I I have not used them yet. So full, you know take it with a grain of salt. I luckily, hopefully I won't have to use them ever for the rest of my life, but (laughs) there is a new uh, chain called veterinary emergency group, VEG that their entire business model, it it is an emergency slash urgent care type of situation. And their business model is that you get to stay with the dog the entire time. They have kind of an open floor plan uh, clinic set up. They even have beds that you can sleep there if you have to, uh, if the dog has to be hospitalized overnight. And so I found them because I thought I was going to need to take my puppy to the ER. Luckily, I didn't have to take my puppy to the ER, <laughs> but um, I was really excited to read about them and learn about them. And it was, um, I told you about it and we kind of kept spiraling through this conversation that we've, we've been having because of your experiences with Jenny as of late. And so that's exciting, but somebody is, you know, they even state kind of when they're talking about the business model, that the research is pretty clear on this, that we want the dog to be less stressed. And that's what we're trying to do is help them be less stressed. Yeah. I, and I, again, I totally sympathize with how managing the owner can be an additional challenge, but I do think that if you design your practice around the expectation that the owner will be there and you set protocols in place, that it can help a lot. 
um, having there be enough room that the owner can stand back, um, understanding what you're going to say to the owner to let them know now is there's going to be a procedure that maybe you might be a little less comfortable with. So you're going to want to stand back, you know, that kind yeah, of and, thing. And I'm sure that they've got protocols and times where the owner needs to go over here. And like, I'm sure that that's all kind of figured out for them. And it does come from a, you know, this is possible, but the entire, the business model needs to be based on it. It needs to be, yes, everything is assuming that the owner will be right here. And then things, things will be done differently. I mean, if you currently run a hospital or work in a hospital and you're thinking, wow, this just wouldn't work for what we've got set up. You're right. It wouldn't because it wasn't designed to work that way. And I'm not saying redesign it overnight, but I am saying, you know, if there are ways to incorporate a little bit more owner involvement when the owner's asking for it, because there are plenty of owners too, who are like, no, please take them. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be over here. Please take them. It's, it's just a thought that we could shift the culture a little bit going forward. Yes, for sure. All right. Well, thank you for having this chat with me today. Thank you for letting me broadcast this message that I so badly wanted to broadcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.